0: We're back this week, I'm in studio again. It's kind of weird because we do so many of these things with our earphones on. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at my guest right now, I feel my ears, my little ear, their little ears free in the air, and that's lovely. My guest this week is Catherine Schultz. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she won a National Magazine Award and Pulitzer Prize just those two for the really big one about a future earthquake that will wreak havoc on the Pacific Northwest. She's the author of two books, Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error, and Lost and Found, a memoir. Well, let's leave it at a memoir and we can talk (laughs) talk about it. But it's really a memoir that tackles two of the hugest human questions, death and love, (laughs) loss and discovery and does so in a way because simply the serendipity if you want to call it that of your life brought those two things together like an asteroid hitting the earth in a way where well, that's not like and that's really not the right analogy and by the way the great thing about this book is its is its analogies there are some gorgeous little moments of recognition which which it really it really reads like a writer's book and i admired it you know, professionally as much as anything, for its ability to write. I I tried doing this thing myself a long time ago, and I may, I'm I'm going to try and do it again if I actually ever get around to starting the book I have a contract for. But I recognize a master at work when I see it, and and that is what this book is, Lost and Found. Catherine, it's so great to see you. It's so strange also to have just read, you know, this incredibly personal thing and then meet you it's just a, the thing about authors is that you know you don't expect to suddenly have them in front of you you have an idea of them in your head and you've been listening to their stories but welcome to the dishcast thank you so much
1: it's delightful to be
0: here tell me about your father because that he he was the big loss and it's it's just just between us i lost my dad at almost exactly the same time but happily i uh, well happily. Not unhappily. I didn't fall instantly in love at the same time. But so it resonated a lot with me, too. Tell us about him. Quite a character.
1: He really was. My dad was a a really remarkable man who lived a a quite extraordinary life in many ways. He was born... In Tel Aviv, when it was still a part of Palestine, his mother was the youngest of 11 children who grew up on a shtetl in central Poland. And when the the shadow of the Second World War was, was kind of falling over the land, and it was quite apparent what, what was coming for everyone, her family they were quite poor and and they really only had enough resources to to scrape together the money to get one of their children to safety and they chose their youngest. I think so often about what my those would have been my paternal great grandparents and I, I think so often about especially now that i'm a'm I'm a, I'm a newish parent myself and i I really cannot imagine the kind of math you have to do in a moment like that and regrettably I, I never get got to talk to them because in fact they and their 11 other children all perished in Auschwitz there 11 there were eleven. Mm-hmm. No. Actually, I, I'm sorry. Let me correct myself. Two survived. The youngest, who they sent to Tel Aviv, my grandmother, and the oldest. Actually, their oldest daughter. I was also sent to Auschwitz, but was alive when the camp was liberated. Good so God. the youngest and oldest survived. The other ten children and and their parents uh, all died.
0: I again, it's an unimaginable choice to make, but they made it, and that's one. One reason we're sitting here. Mm, So your grandmother goes to Tel Aviv in the middle of considerable unrest there as well. Yeah. When is your father born exactly?
1: My father was born in 1941. So he was, yes, by the time he was a toddler, he'd kind of lost that whole family. He was actually presumably because my my grandmother, who was basically just a teenager when she went to Tel Aviv, was, was... horribly distraught. He was actually sent off to a kibbutz in, in outside of Tel Aviv and spent a few of his formative years living in a kibbutz and then was reunited with his family. And as, as you point out, you know, it, Poland was a terrible place to be during the war, but Tel Aviv was not a very good place to be after it. You know, it, it, it became its own kind of war zone. And the family was very poor. The area they were living in was very violent. And so my grandparents were, were quite desperate. By then they had two other boys as well. And my, my dad was one of three sons, and they were quite desperate to get their family out of there and quite poor and, and looking for work. and so they made, what I think we can safely say is kind of one of the, the strangest decisions in the history of modern Judaism, which is they up and took their whole family out of Tel Aviv in February of 1948, so three months before the creation of the state of Israel. And they moved, of all places in the world, they moved to Germany. Uh, because my grandfather had heard correctly, as it turned out, that it was possible to make a pretty decent living on the post-war black market there.
0: Yeah, but but let's just stop for a second. You bet. <laughs> Of all the places you could go to, you would go in 1948, mm. no less, mm-hmm. to the site of this the shower. Mm. What I mean, I, anyway, he—that's he, the first decision in his life that struck me as whoa. This man has a mind of his own mm. and and a will of his own, but didn't stay in Germany forever, of course.
1: No, not at all, and and yeah, I mean, it was interesting to me in, in kind of researching this book. I was surprised to learn, you know, there were. To some extent, there were quite I mean obviously look the 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 I should never say there were quite a lot of Jews in Germany after the Second World War because the whole tragedy of course was the population was just absolutely you know almost annihilated which had been the whole point but of course when those camps were liberated and when the war ended a lot of Jews were stranded there a lot of Jews in neighboring nations went there to try to find any possible survivors and a very small number like my like my father's father and his family went there to try to find so it was it was quite a strange place to be but my dad lived in Germany from the age of 7 to about 12, when his family finally got refugee visas and, and resettled in Detroit, where my dad arrived speaking six languages fluently, but none of them were English. He didn't know a lick of English and was kind of promptly put in a, what they then called an Americanization school. I don't know that this institution still exists, but they, they put him in an Americanization school. And my dad began the project of becoming, becoming American and, and becoming, in, in some ways, I guess, the man I knew as my father.
0: Highly interested in ideas, books, reading. Again, not someone with a hugely privileged background, to say the least. But here's the other thing that struck me reading, reading the book and thinking about him, is that I can't imagine a more traumatizing childhood. Mm. I just can't. I mean, well, you can, obviously. But, but it, to, to have to f- lose your whole family, to flee, to go another place where there's war... I mean, the whole thing just, we talk today about trauma, I think, in a way that kind of completely drains the word of its power, (laughs) because it really should be reserved for quite severe experiences. And yet his ability to recover and to bounce back, I mean, did you ever, because I don't get any sense of this in the book, notice him in later life just having moments of darkness because he seems like not a dark person at all.
1: He was not a dark person. And and you've identified in about 30 seconds the two great mysteries of my father's life. And one is how he became quite so brilliant as he was and, and quite so at ease in the land of ideas and books and language because absolutely nothing in his surroundings ever would have predicted or, or created kind of helpful circumstances for such a person to emerge. And, and second of all, how someone who really did experience just an enormous amount of violence and death and poverty and deprivation and exile emerge as this quite joyful and ebullient man. Did I ever see darkness in my father? I mean, look, he was not my father was not, you know, a Pollyanna, right? He he was not oblivious to or uninterested in confronting the genuine difficulties of life and sorrow and suffering. So he was never kind of glib in his in his joyfulness or his happiness. But you would never call him a dark man. I mean, he had. I wish he could just walk in. Everyone would kind of grasp instantly. A wonderful thing about my father is he he was who he was. You know, you you met him and, and and you kind of got a sense of him that proved very accurate. He had this kind of enormous belly laugh and he loved humans. So he would be, you know, this your role in this conversation would immediately end because he would be asking you all the questions. And, and he really was quite joyful. You know, my father took a very long time to ever want to revisit his past. That's the one thing I will say about him that I think was characteristic of of people who go through a lot of trauma or or can be one characteristic of it. Certainly, it's famously true of of actual Holocaust survivors, this kind of disinclination to talk about the past. But it wasn't until my father was probably in his 60s that he really got interested in, in revisiting his childhood, including literally. He did go back to Israel for the first time since he had left at the age of seven. He started speaking much more openly about a lot of his childhood. But it wasn't like in the intervening years it had been this, you know, un- unspeakable area or this kind of obvious, you know, thing you tiptoe around in my family. It was just that he, he had a kind of late in life resurgence of interest in him, but in it. But no, one, as I said, one of the great mysteries of my father was he was, a, I think, genuinely extraordinary, happy person. I think I guess I, I guess the important thing to say is there are many ways to respond to trauma, some of which I do not think are necessarily always in our control. But but one way is to feel enormous gratitude. That, that you were the one to emerge from it, right? And, and that you have the life you have and you have the sources of happiness and stability that you have. And, and my dad, to his great credit and to my great good fortune, I think at every possible moment chose the side of gratitude.
0: And one thing that struck me too is that for a man of his generation, thrilled to bring his daughter into the world of ideas, there was... No, I didn't get any He's He's who he is and boy, girl, whatever. And he created, well, he didn't create, forgive me, but he, he he was able to nurture in you. So that made your bond particularly intense. And you were constantly in touch with him, right? I mean, most of your life.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my...
0: Did you have any option in that? <laughs> was it, was it-
1: I mean, I, it never crossed my mind to think about it, because I just loved being in touch with my father, you know, in his presence as a kid. But yes, you know, I'm very fortunate. My, my father lived well into my own adulthood. So I got to have an adult relationship with him. And yeah, you know, my dad loved email. I mean, email was created for my father, right? Like a, a, a very funny guy, a guy very gifted with words. He loved email. He loved text messages. He, he loved the phone, frankly. So so yes, even long after I was not living under under the same roof as my mom and dad, we were, we were in constant touch. And You know, you're right. I appreciate you bringing that up. It's really interesting. My father was, I think, an absolutely... Instinctive feminist and would have been had that word never entered his vocabulary. Although, frankly, all words entered his vocabulary. But <laughs> yeah, you know, my dad had two daughters, which I'm sure was part of it. You know, he he only ever wanted the world for us. And you know, I'm a writer. My sister is a scientist. I think both of us owe our careers and our trajectories in many, many ways to my dad. I don't, by the way, want to shortchange my mother. A very cruel thing about about life is we often. Eulogize people only after they're dead. My mother was amazing, and I, I don't want to in any way suggest that
0: you, you, the, she wasn't, you know. what the amazing <laughs> thing about the book is that the marriage itself, I mean, this is the, probably the part of the solution to the mystery of his mm-hmm. tenacity and his rebound is that he has this incredible marriage. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I, <laughs> I did not grow up in the same situation. So it's a kind of, and it continues with this extraordinary Consistency until the very end. And you, you describe one of the final things he could do with actually pucker up his lips for <laughs> his wife's kiss. So part of the grief is also looking at the end of that beautiful relationship. And maybe that too is 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 I mean I, I, I reflected on this, that that you How on earth could you replicate that relationship? No wonder it took you a while or you to find someone who you could you could have that kind of relationship. It's not easy. I'm not sure whether it's I'm not sure whether the generation we're talking about with your dad, whether they didn't just accept that it wasn't going to solve all their problems. It wasn't going to be the meaning of their life. And by having a slightly lower expectation of it and a sense that it's just what you do. They were able to be surprised by the joy in it at times. I don't know less is more sometimes, but I found interesting that you are you're mourning not just him but their love, and and in that period, you suddenly, in a way that's kind of epic, and this it's a it's a love story. This 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 book it's almost. I meant part of it. I'm like, screw you, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, enough already. <laughs> the bliss here is ridiculous. But nonetheless, that all seemed wound up in your, co- in, in your consciousness mm-hmm. at the time, which is why maybe, of course, this book about loss and discovery is 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 a natural fusion of the two. When did you actually think of the book?
1: So it was sort of in a funny way it was kind of a long time coming only because i i did write about the death of my father not so long after it happened and i wrote about it in this larger context of loss so my father died in september of 2016 and the following february i published an essay in the new yorker that was kind of very odd little eulogy to him and, and what was odd about it was that it was it was of course about my father's death and and my grief over it but it was it was embedded in this in this reflection on the weirdness of the category of loss you know why why is it that i would put my dead father in the same category as my you know missing iphone and and the sock that somehow vanished in the washing machine like is this linguistic coincidence is it meaningful in some way what what does it mean that we we talk about losing all of these wildly different things and I wrote that and um, in the way that sort of happens when you write a thing, especially something personal I find, you know, a certain number of people will come up to you and say, Oh, you should make that into a book, and I cannot begin to describe to you the depth of my lack of desire in that moment to turn right. it into a book. I, I really I felt like, you know, I felt like I had said what I wanted to say and said it as best as I knew how. And yes, of course there's always more to say about grief, but who wants to spend three years doing nothing but thinking about grief? And there was quite a lot more to say about my father, but I thought, well, you know, there's a lot to say about all human beings. We're a kind of fascinating species. And I kind of let it go. And then, I don't know, a year, a couple of years later, I was... Um I was on a back road in the middle of the night in the great state of Alabama with my partner, who we we spent a lot of time there. She, at the time, was working on a book that was set down there. So we were forever driving across these like long, endless stretches of Alabama. And for some reason, I cannot reconstruct. We were talking about this question of, like, would I ever want to make it into a book? And in the course of that conversation, it occurred to me that there was this kind of beautiful sort of mirror image tale that i was quite interested in telling which was instead of an exploration of the category of loss it was an exploration of the category of discovery of finding things which is you know similarly strange right like we find the sock that we lost but we also find god and we find our partner and and we find you know a vaccine for a global pandemic it's a really capacious and and interesting category and i thought oh well you know i could do the same thing i could look at that category but the the sort of emotional heart of it instead of being the, the loss of my father could be you know, the most wonderful thing I've ever found, which is my partner, you know, driving me down this Alabama highway right now. And I thought, oh, okay, that's like kind of interesting to me suddenly. And as I was discussing this, my my partner happened to use this like totally everyday phrase, lost and found, which became the title of the book. And because the, you know, mind at 2 a.m. on an Alabama back road is a very strange thing, I I actually just really heard the and. Like I, I heard the like deep connection between these two experiences, which I'm sure is because, as you as you noted, in my life, by sheer coincidence, they really were temporally connected. I found my partner and lost my father in very quick succession and therefore, I think, was already really thinking about conjunction and connection, right? Like the way that you know, it would be nice if we could experience our like, you know, wild heights of love and ecstasy utterly separate from any kind of taint of grief or sorrow or sadness. Life never works that way, right? I mean, even if you don't have this coincidence I had in life, all of us, you know, you 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 love your brother, but he drives you insane, or you, you know, you adore your children, but you like despise the ex-husband, you know, even though you would never have those children. But do you him. mean in
0: those sentences and? and I yes.
1: You. Sorry. Yes, I'm saying, but I <laughs> I very much mean but. and. But. Yeah.
0: The, the, but. That, there's a section of book about that word and. Exactly. That implies, and it's kind of philosophically interesting because you know, I studied a lot of Popper, I studied Oakshott, I studied the, the idea that history is simply a, a bunch of ands, that there is no system predicting stuff, that, that human life is is not programmatic. It's dramatic. And therefore, every move on the billiard table opens a million other possible different moves. But the, the relationship between one move and another doesn't have to have a forward movement or a backward movement. It can just be attached. And in fact, in some ways, I have to say, I think that our culture right now is in desperate need of an and because it's red and blue, as it were. Mm-hmm. People can be bigots and good people, people can be zealots and compassionate. People are complicated and societies are complicated. And and our attempt to simplify them into these binaries or to provide some causation between mm-hmm. one event and another, when in fact it's it's a whole bunch of random ands. Mm-hmm. And here you are in your life, and you have a random end. You lose and you find. And there's no real connection between those two things except that they are connected.
1: That's exactly right, and I yes, I think it's very you know people desperately want the world to be causal. You know they want you know if then and and because partly because you know causes are things that they, they feel like we can intervene on them. Right, we can change outcomes if we know that everything is linked in some kind of causal and meaningful way, but. You know, I don't want to suggest that's never the case, but it's a minority case. I think very often either causes are so obscure unto us and hopelessly complicated, we would never get to the bottom of them. Or or they, they simply aren't connected in that way. They are merely connected. You know, they, they, they just they have a relationship solely because they coexist. They happen at the same time or they happen in sequence or they are happening unto us, you know, and that is, I think, the fundamental texture of grown up life. But it is, I think, kind of seldom considered and and probably relatedly not entirely comfortable. You know, it's quite difficult. The thing I love about where I live now is that actually it's Which impossible. Which is in the,
0: in the distant boondocks to such an extent. <laughs> <laughs> that when we, sticks, remotely, <laughs> when we tried to do this remotely, my father would say, "We tried to do this remotely. The internet wouldn't work." But it's the east. You're talking about the eastern shore of Delaware or Maryland. Maryland. No. I live on
1: the eastern shore of Maryland. And to your point, you know, it's 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 quite impossible to live where I live and live in community and and not be aware, as you noted, for instance, that you can, you know, someone can wildly disagree with your politics and on paper present as someone for whom you would not merely have nothing in common but but probably experience some real degree of abhorrence, possibly for extremely politically legitimate reasons. You know, people who perhaps even have an you know, or you think they might have an actual existential, you know, problem with with, with your whole being and your whole life and in fact, they're lovely and kind and they bring gifts for your baby and they check in on you when you're sick and, and they tend to you in all kinds of ways. And many, many people are like that, right? All of us are, to your point, infinitely complicated in various ways. And I, I do think, right, you know, it's not that we can just sort of sublimely accept the world as it is, although many philosophies suggest we would all be better off if we did. But, but one does have to grapple with the end of life because it's omnipresent.
0: I remember particularly I, I had an uncle, unfortunately recently died, who was a very strict Catholic. I mean, a whole branch of my family is not just Catholic, but very strictly Catholic and still are. And he, till the end, was treasurer of his local church. He was, and he was a serious mind and he was a wonderful man and he was incredibly smart. He worked in the travel industry. He actually provided the first opportunity for me to come to the United States. He lived in LA and <laughs> I got a trip out in, in college to come see him and look at Los Angeles, which was the first time I ever arrived. Anyway, I'm digressing. But so what was going to happen with me and my marriage and my gayness and all the rest of it? Because it's also that it wasn't that we were constantly in touch, but we would see each There would be family occasions when we would be there. There were Christmas cards. There were, you know, all that stuff. And I remember one, one time we were together and I got talking to him about it. I love him. I loved him. And he said to me, "Well, you know, we were talking, Well, this is civil equality. We, we had the because in my family, like yours, arguments all the time about all sorts of shit. And we didn't. If you were aggressive in an argument, it was not a sign of." in any sense of antipathy. It was, in fact, the more aggressive you were. The happier everyone was. <laughs> yes, and the more, the more we understood that that's part of the process. And he said to me at one point, you know, but yes, I, oh, I wouldn't, I probably, you know, I understand you agree politically, but, you know, it's not a marriage, Andrew. And, and I remember thinking and saying at the time, you know, you're right from one perspective it is not the sacrament of matrimony. It is not what the church has historically understood as a marriage. And I think it is It is a civil marriage. It is not bound up with the profound theology that is rooted in the sex binary in Catholic teaching. It's not related to procreation, which is integral to marriage in the religious tradition. So you are right. And we could make have another argument whether that should be the case, but of course you're right. And did I was I wounded? Was I did my relationship with him change? No, I think it deepened. Hmm.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, you know. So this book is in three parts: lost, found, and then this kind of odd part, and at the end. And and loss is about the death of my father and losing things, and found is about discovery and and finding my partner and falling in love. But I, I actually took our marriage, our actual wedding ceremony, and I put it in the and section because I do think it's such a wonderful kind of and in in so many ways. I mean, it's it's the fundamental and, right? You know, Catherine and Casey, or you know, whatever two names or your your you're binding together in that moment and you're binding these lineages together. And it, it has this kind of, you know, contrary your uncle to some extent, this sort of biblical feel, right? The forward march of generations bound together in this lovely way. But but also a wedding for, I think, almost anyone on the planet is the consummate end because the uncle is always there, right? I mean, there are always people for whom your union, and I think this is true at least as often for straight people as for gay people, there, there, are, there are people for whom The wedding is a moment when you decide to show up because you love someone no matter what other feelings. You are, you know, you love someone and you are bringing all other kinds of things into that moment, which was certainly the case for us. You know, I think there were probably an equal number of people at our wedding who thought it was really quite strange because we were two women getting married in, in you know, the absence of a of any clergy, although my partner is quite devout and, you know, outdoors and wearing suits and, you know, with, without all kinds of, you know, the, the, the kind of conventional things that attend a wedding. And, And, you know, sitting, you know, in the same aisle were were just as many people who thought the whole thing was terribly conventional. And, you know, (laughs) what is this wedding nonsense anyway? And, you know, here you are with your vows and your pretty readings and your cake. And this is all very, you know, this is all a bit, you know, stayed. So, you know, there's there's a lot of and that that happens at weddings, I think. And I I found it quite wonderful, to be honest.
0: Isn't that kind of a metaphor for America right now? Mm. Except... Except in America right now, one half of the pews are yelling at the mm-hmm. other, and the others are yelling back, mm-hmm. as opposed to showing up, because there is a bigger project here, which is not necessarily about us, it's about the country, or mm-hmm. about the Constitution, or about America, that we, we at some point we can't let this, we can't lose the end, or we are finished. Mm-hmm. But there's also that sense of duty, you show up.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I hope it's for a metaphor for America in the sense that I, I very much hope the union holds. And yeah, I, hope- I
0: don't, I don't, I didn't mean to enter, <laughs> to add some sort of political piety to this moment. But I, but I, and the other thing I wanted to say is that, and I'm so happy we did it in this conversation, is that we didn't talk about the sex of the person you were marrying until mm. you used the pronoun she. Mm. And that's also a really brilliant part of this book. I'm not sure whether you're aware of it. I kept thinking, what if I hadn't known anything about this person but heard her for half the book talk about her dad and blah, 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 before talking about her partner? And then, lo and behold, the partner is a woman. And there is not a single thing in the book, I don't think, that tries to push this into some sort of gay thing. It is specifically a lesbian love affair, but it is a human story that I think any heterosexual person could easily understand, this is a huge achievement. I, I mean, I've, I've been hoping in my whole lifetime to read books like this in which there doesn't have to be a song and dance about this. We don't have to clear our throats and like, and we've we queered our way through. It's just... No, you're humans. And not only that, but you add this extraordinary other detail, which is that your partner is this devout Christian. And again, that's, not, that's certainly not where your father was coming from. But it's an and no less. and and that is not something that cannot be bridged. In fact, it's partly why you love her. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of you to say that it's a huge achievement, and I think it is, but it isn't my huge achievement, right? I mean, it's a huge achievement on the part of the culture. And in fact, if either of the two of us sitting at this table deserve credit for it, it is certainly you, not me, meaning I didn't help bring about the shift that enabled, made it possible to write a love story between two women that is not received by the culture as a lesbian love story. In fact, to be perfectly honest, I've been slightly shocked by the extent to which (laughs) that's been true. I mean, I, you know, I've talked about the love story. I, you know, I talk quite a lot about grief. I'm always very happy when people want to talk about love because to me this whole book is about love in various ways. But i talked about it a fair amount. And I, it's just been so not queer, which has been an interesting experience for me. I mean, I, I, I came out and came of age at a time when it did still still feel imp- urgently necessary to assert one's queerness and one's lesbianness and, and the nature of one's relationship and you know in part that was because it was it was not evident that there was going to be public space for it. you know this was before Obergefell, it was before gay marriage was before you know many of the I mean before I say we, we might be in a little interregnum here but it was certainly this kind of lovely moment when it, it felt possible to imagine that that at least in this country for now our Lives, you know, as a lesbian couple with a child now, were um, really relatively safe, stable, politically, and, and, and frankly, fairly mainstream. But it was not, you know, there's just no way if this book had come out even 10 years ago, certainly... 20 years ago there's no universe in which this wouldn't have been received as a lesbian memoir and it just starkly has not been which I share your I share your happiness about I mean I've slightly mixed feelings about it I think it's a really complicated and interesting question sort of what happens to I once wrote a piece about sort of the end of the coming out memoir occasioned by two new books by Jeanette Winterson and Alison Bechdel neither of which were remotely coming out stories and I was I was you know a fan of those books and of those authors but it's an interesting question what happens to a minority community when it does become mainstream and sort of you know you've written and thought about this too you know it obviously does have cultural effects in all kinds of ways but my overarching feeling is yes of course I'm incredibly happy that I can I mean look I'm writing about love and death I'm writing about two of the most universal experiences maybe maybe it's kind of frankly the other than Childbearing and childrearing, maybe the only universal experiences in the human condition.
0: Well, childbearing uh, and, and certainly so, isn't universal. Well. Oh,
1: sure. Actually, it's those are more. I, I stand corrected. Childrearing is a little bit closer, but even that is not so much. But yes, love and loss. I mean, this is as close as you can get to a common experience. And to be honest, that was what was interesting to me. And I'm I'm very heartened and very happy that they were so far. Are they are, they are being received as as just that as you know a, a, these kind of fundamental elements of life that we have in common and that merit kind of, you know, ongoing reflection by each generation, by any voice that wants to contribute to it, because they are so shared. And and I feel I feel lucky to get to write about it in those
0: ways. What I one of the things I appreciate of the appreciated the book is in some ways it is yes, it's a memoir, but it's really three essays. Mm-hmm. And the essay form, which is not an article, it, this you weren't. This isn't the article about the coming earthquake. It's it's not. Well, it, it, although it does have some parts of it. For example, you have this wonderful p- part where you just, when you're dealing with the question of scale, and our little moment in the universe, and you you then zoom out and you tell the story of creation essentially, I mean, in a completely materialistic way. It reminded me of that sequence in Tree of Life where suddenly we're in this narrative and then we get given this moment, this stunning piece of cinematography where we are then suddenly seeing all of human existence, all of and you go from the extraordinary specific to the extraordinarily general. Now that that is the definition of the essay it is it is telling a story it has a per, very it has an eye in it. it has to have some personal reflection but really the eye is a means to reflecting on rather general themes that, that 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 and and it's all stitched together by the story and I tried to do I tried to do this like and again I'm a little frustrated in a way because when I, I it was an AIDS memoir in many ways love undetectable and It's it is it's a three part essay, three three essays together, and and it was never it did never got past. It's a gay AIDS memoir. Mm -hmm. It never was able to break through. Partly because that experience itself talk about loss, but it it didn't it didn't really uh, break out, which is fine. But it was it was what I was trying to do.
1: It's so interesting. I mean, I think a lot about the books that I read when I was, you know, first coming out and young and very new to that world and frankly, very new to myself in the way that you are when you're coming out, but also when you're like 17, 18. And for what it's worth... I mean, have I ever read anything more meaningful to me? Some of them are terrible, you know, in a certain sense. And, you know, it's, it's, will I return to them the way I might return to, you know, Middlemarch or something? No, probably not. But, but I I actually think, and this is why I, I kind of had that equivocal moment about what happens to a culture when it, when it becomes mainstream and maybe specifically what happens to its artists and its writers and its, its magnificent voices. You know, this is obviously a, a question not only about queer vote, but about, about being Jewish, right? I mean, that's also a, an identity that began in this nation profoundly as, as an outsider identity and took a long time to produce a Philip Roth, right? Who other people, non-Jews, were reading, who was, was making the pages of major magazines and publications. And I guess that's all to say that, man, I can't think of anything more important to write than a, a memoir about the AIDS era you know it's, it's well, it was life-changing it. for so many people
0: it was and it's there is something about loss as your father which was I mean he how he was 74 was it mm-hmm. okay uh God, my brain is not that far gone. I don't see that <laughs> much weed. No, I might have had to think about it for a second, Andrew. That so. <laughs> came out of my consciousness. I can't remember where I put my lighter. Where was I? Now I lost my train of thought.
1: I mean, I can fill it in for you, probably. You know, my, my a thing I try to really emphasize in the book is it's hard to, you know, overstate the extent to which my father's death was not tragic. Right. You know, he died at 74 after this incredibly fascinating and long life. And he died surrounded by the people who loved him and died, you know, I, I, I think, I hope, relatively at peace. And I think, I hope, knowing that we were all at his side. So, yes, about as far as you can get from the tragedy of, of all of these lives cut short by AIDS or, or, or by so many other things. You know, and, and I, I suppose part of what was interesting to me is it's frankly kind of a good, it's a good little cauldron for looking at loss just in its absolute pure state because it's sort of unencumbered by tragedy my father's death wasn't tragic but you know what it still sucked right i mean it's still terrible and that to me was part of what was interesting like this is the this is the good version right this is the good version and 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 yet still we lose our parents. We lose everything we love and and, and how do we cope with that? I've gotten very far afield of the gay memoir, but yes to your point about it was not a tragedy. It was very much not a tragedy.
0: Yeah, and you had time to prepare Mm. and time to patch everything up and, well not patch, you had nothing to patch up, but the thing I'm most grateful for right now in my life is that in December of 2019 I think, forgive me if I it's the wrong year, because COVID it's just before COVID I was visiting back home and I spent I decided because it is increasingly the case with my f- parents is that I I spent a whole day with my dad, which is rare because in the end we we were looking at sports on TV there's there's it was a different kind of dad. but then literally a month and a half later, he's going to bed, he's walking up the stairs, he slips on the top stair, he falls backwards, breaks mm-hmm. his back, breaks his spine, breaks his neck, and is left at the bottom of the stairs completely paralyzed.
1: God, Andrew, I'm so sorry.
0: All night. No pain, because he was completely he was in the Christopher Reeve kind of situation at that point. And no one there. Except that as morning came, my sister and my brother and my nephew just dropped by because mm. they all live, well, they all live close. My brother lives very close to find him, and he was still alive, and he lived a couple more days. I don't think I've, I, I really don't think I've even started a grief. I wasn't there, and I couldn't get back in time. It just happened all so quickly, and I was actually also just recovering from an operation, mm. which was made it, all the, it always happens when you don't want it to happen. So I had, I was in, I was, it was, it was, it was awful my but what my brother and sister went through on the fo- those two days i i'm so i'm so grateful to them and but what a thing to have to grapple with when something comes at you like that because death like love can come at you with staggering speed and there are those moments. I remember the moment I was told I was going to, in my own head, I'm I'm a dead man. Or the mo- which was the moment I simultaneously knew I would, I may be deported, because of this very condition. Oh my god! It was a huge whammy out of the blue, and I always keep that in mind. You know, anything can happen at any time, and we obviously can't live. With that constantly in our mind, because we would go crazy, we would be paralysed. But that's true. Yeah. If you can get to a spot where you can be indifferent to that, then boy, have you mastered the human experience. Mm-hmm. But there is a. But, but I also believe that that moment is is the truest moment. It's when we finally actually acknowledge we are not in control at all, at all, and this is what our reality really is.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very, very hard to stay in any kind of consistent contact with that reality, which to your point is, is healthy in some ways. I mean, we all have to like go get our coffee, coffees and you know gossip about something and just read a book or watch Netflix or whatever, but it's, I, it's funny, you know, would it drive us insane? I suppose so, and yet I also think that that is probably the the deepest and mainly maybe for some of us only wellspring of gratitude right i mean that that's that's where you get the reminder of all these banal things we say and they're, they're banal only because they they're they're deeply true and therefore we repeat them a lot but yeah i mean life is short right life is unpredictable and and we need the jolt of you know love the people you love, you know, call them up, go spend the day with your father, you know, because you just, you really, you don't know. And it's so funny. I tell this story in the book. It's a true story. It was a real gift from the story gods. I can barely believe it's true. But I tell, I tell a story in the book about this little boy who's almost hit by a falling star, which then turns out to be kind of relevant plot wise later in the book. But I, I tell it in part because I I can't imagine a better metaphor for how life sometimes works you know the losing and the finding right i mean something just like comes plummet, plummeting at you out of absolutely nowhere and and you know sometimes it's a bad thing and it, it really you know knocks you on your knees and just just humbles you and takes away so much and sometimes it's a falling star you know sometimes it's it's it's, it's a it's a little miracle dropping onto you out of nowhere and you know that is the Or it's both or it's both right to the to the point of and or it's both you know yeah. many of us you know i think a, a a difficult and fascinating thing about pain and loss and suffering i grapple with this a lot in the book you know you never want to be facile about it and you know how what doesn't kill you makes you makes you stronger this kind of thing but of course it is the case that a lot of the deepest things we learn about life and learn about ourselves and learn about our friends and one another and and frankly just about the very mysterious operations of the cosmos come in moments of real pain and there's just no getting out from under that and that's a very very hard pain none of us want our uh, hard truth none of us want our pain to be linked to our enlightenment as it were and yet it it often is
0: and when you create a culture as we have that's pathologically attempting to avoid suffering of any kind, whether that be through you know the miracles of modern medicine, the miracles of narcotics, and all the rest of it, and also just middle class comfort or material, just that sense of buffetedness. You you slowly take, I mean, it, obviously there are exceptions, but compared to what people used to live through, in which these kind of calamities happened much more regularly than they do now. I mean, the idea of having a child was a life and death situation for women for for most of human existence. Disease, war, just the vicissitudes of, of life came at people at a far more powerful. We have, as a species, we've tried to protect ourselves as much as we possibly can. But at the expense of something, at the expense of being kept in touch with the core reality of our lives, which, of course, leads most people to religion to to the consolations of eternity essentially in the face of mortality which we have also lost track of Uh, not entirely obviously like your partner is an example of someone who but i don't know how i could have gotten through all that stuff in my 20s and 30s without god I, 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 I just can't. And I know for a fact that I gave up on him, but he picked me back up. And the, the, in some ways, it seems to me that this is and it's so weird in the current context to talk about Christianity. But this is fundamental truth of Christianity. Suffering is suffering. Extreme suffering is you're closer to God in those experiences of your profound recognition of your utter lostness, your utter weakness, your utter vulnerability. That is when we are jolted into our real consciousness. I, I, I say there's a certain amount of passion. I'm not saying that I live that every day. I don't. I've lived it like maybe three or four days of my life, but that's living.
1: Well, since I'm frankly, slightly ill suited to talk to you about Christianity and suffering i it's interesting, I agree with you, but I also have to say it's a very strange thing about our culture, like yes, obviously you are right that we are profoundly coddled in many ways, and we go to extraordinarily extraordinary lengths to avoid trauma and suffering, and that is everything from kind of extreme measures at the end of life to you know turn up the air conditioning one degree. Or we, you know, we, we have an increasingly narrow comfort band in which or we live. Or you cannot and,
0: use these words because the use of actual words will create or you cannot, trauma in people.
1: Or you cannot use these words. But what's strange is that I think we also live in a culture, and, and you know, maybe these two things are quite related actually, but I think we also live in a culture that to some extent really valorizes suffering and trauma and is quite uncomfortable with happiness and and certainly does not does not focus on it as a a kind of deep desideratum of life and and something we should be striving for happiness i think so i mean i think that you I, i think this in part because it's so funny we were just talking about how my book was not received as a lesbian memoir it was not and i so i didn't get any of the there's all kinds of pushbacks one could get about this book or any book and you know ranging from oh you know you're Dad lives into ripe old age. Why are you writing about loss? Or you know, oh, what does this queer memoir have to do with me and my life? Oh, any number of things? I didn't get any of that. I'll tell you what I got with um, surprising regularity was, oh, come on. I mean, you can't really have been so happy, right? Your your family of origin couldn't have been that happy. Your your marriage and family that you've made for yourself can't be that happy. like. What a, tell us tell us the dark secrets you didn't put in the book. And I don't think that that's just the kind of natural desire to like peer behind the scenes or whatever. I, I actually do think that we, as a culture, are, and and some of this, I th- I think I think this, as is so often the case, grew out of some very appropriate cultural trends that that probably are now due for an overcorrection. I think it was incredibly important that we made room in mainstream culture for trauma and suffering because they're real you know I think it's really important that I mean look I wrote a memoir the memoir space is is basically dominated by one of two kinds of books one is a celebrity memoir and and the other is a kind of trauma narrative and I don't say that disparagingly I I too would like to be Michelle Obama and and I don't say disparagingly about about trauma memoirs either I think it's incredibly important. I mean look the 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 AIDS memoir falls into this category. The coming out memoir falls in this category. Now that category looks a lot more like, you know, books like Educated or The Liar's Club or The Glass Castle that are stories about profoundly broken homes that do enormous amounts of damage to children. And do I think it's incredibly important that we told those kinds of stories? Absolutely, unquestionably. But I do think it kind of swung, and not just the genre, the whole culture swung in this interesting direction in which it ceased to feel possible or important that the family or the community, however you want to define either, became a system or could be a system designed to support and sustain us and and create happy lives and good lives. Like, I really do think that that is kind of fallen out of of the way that we think about relationships. And it's become the the minority position and the the object of a lot of skepticism. And I think that's very sad.
0: Just to clarify, I completely agree with you. My concern about the profligate use of the term trauma, the way in which mm. it's been expanded into so many different areas. It's become so common that it actually detracts from actual trauma, which absolutely needs to be written about, mm. talked about, thought about. The word happy, I've always, I've always liked it. Mm. Happy Christmas, we say in the United mm. Kingdom. and We
1: say happy Hanukkah. <laughs>
0: yeah. But you're the only, this is your we are the only country, listen to me, we are the only country that has happiness in its Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. The, the pursuit of happiness is the central goal of the American life. The life and liberty are means to the happiness. And, and somehow you're right. I mean, I, I do think that we sometimes, we've, we've gotten our heads completely distorted in seeking damage trauma everywhere without simultaneously noticing how a lot of people are happy <laughs> and and in the simple human ways, the, the, the nod to the, the neighbor, the the old meeting with a friend, you know, the it's we're not a miserable species <laughs> entirely. And and insofar as we live in in however distraught but materially unprecedentedly plentiful times for most people, obviously not for everyone, as the Petra boy song puts it happiness is an option but then there's that whole pursuit thing (laughs) which implies we never have it and it's it's the lack of it the striving for it that defines the american way of life i mean if if you went to the scottish say, say and said your job in life is to be happy they would look at you as if you were speaking swahili i mean it just It just doesn't compute. Same with the Irish. But they live in such
1: a beautiful country. What's not to be happy about?
0: (laughs) Beautiful country. It is beautiful in photographs. (laughs) Can you imagine living in the dark like half the year and the rain all of the year? I'm sorry. I'm going to get. We have listeners in Scotland. I love Scotland. It's the greatest thing ever. Uh, Actually, one of my lowest points of my life was uh, this is when I was in college. Neil Ferguson, you know, the historian, we were at college together, and, and he he wanted me to come up to his, he, he's from Glasgow, Scotland, and he invited me up for New Year's in Scotland. And one extremely drunk night where I had already gotten a little suzzled, we had the Hogmanay whiskey shot as New Year's comes in. And I was, you know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't. We didn't. I think I went to a restaurant once until I got to college, and there was. I didn't drink anything. I was completely, and I just instantly vomited the whole thing up.
1: Happy New Year! (laughs) Happy New Year!
0: This pathetic English loser couldn't even down his whiskey scotch. Anyway, why am I digressing to that? Oh, that was a complete uh, detour. Let's come back to to love. One could say that this book is about being. Being in love, mm. and not love. In other words, love is to come. Mm. That the experience of falling in love, falling. It's 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 a it's a wonderful expression because it is kind of involuntary. And yes, of course, of course, it's voluntary. But it, it's it's a strange combination of of things. That the term limerence. This book is the second half of this book is full of limerence. Are you worried one day you may look back and think?
1: <laughs> <laughs> See, there you go. Being skeptical. Cabbage. No, I'm not. And and I, I don't know that I would have written it if, if such a worry had ever even crossed my mind. I I don't know that falling in love is voluntary. I think sustaining it, making we make voluntary choices a thousand times a day as partners, obviously, and as people in the world. And those choices... Preserve or corrode our relationship. So, in in that sense, sustaining it, I think, is is to some extent voluntary. But yes, you're right. Falling is is the right word. It feels like a physical force, like gravity. And in my case, as as legions of friends of mine can tell you, I'm terribly persnickety. I mean, I, I waited a, a very long time to commit my life to someone because she simply hadn't come along. <laughs> and no, I, I, I'm not worried about it. I mean. Not only would I not have written this book, more saliently, I would never have had a child with someone who I I didn't feel absolutely confident I would want to be with until my dying day. And it's funny. We've been kind of in and out of conversations about or verging on politics. And in in all kinds of ways, I'm, you know, relatively... um, radical person or certainly have been branded so at various points in my life. But in my personal life, I'm terribly conventional. You and I were chatting about this before this began. And I I want nothing more than to watch my partner grow old and, and grow old alongside her and raise our children together. And I... I hope that this book for, for both of us and for our children and grandchildren actually does quite the opposite. I hope it's, it's kind of always there as a just a beautiful little memento of, of a certain era. Because, of course, love changes, life changes. It's It's, I hope, you know, long and enduring. And it felt both important to me, but quite frankly, also just like a ton of fun to sit down and just write about it's kind of blossoming in its early days and falling in love and getting married. And no, I'm not. I'm not concerned that someday I'll have to account for my, you know, idiocy in writing it down.
0: <laughs> you, you, you talk about the phenomenon of love at first sight. Mm. Essentially, that you say you're very persnickety, No one quite lived up. You didn't want this person, this person, and yet your decision with your current. Wife slash partner was instant.
1: Only wife, I should clarify.
0: <laughs> Only wife. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know whether you prefer wife or partner. Ah,
1: it's so That's funny. It's a um, it's a bit of a point of dispute within our own household. My I'm partner. Sure
0: you you're good wife wants the word wife you are you absolutely
1: don't. correct you have inferred correctly i i kind of came of age with partner but and i've always been comfortable with it she is very God comfortable with hippie. wife so we i know it's <laughs> terrible like i said my me and my radical politics so here's another thing you, you, you may use either one that's but to say. but
0: radical politics christian orthodox christian when i say orthodox i don't mean russian i mean just a devout you call you use the word devout this is spectacular <laughs> that that two humans can I mean for me it's just a great example of the capacity of love to bridge worldviews obviously I don't it sounds kind of glib when you say it like but most true things sound glib when you actually say them directly.
1: Well, I mean, look, that's both. It's absolutely true, of course. I mean, a very beautiful thing about love is that it it's not that it makes difference irrelevant. It's that it makes it beautiful, right? And interesting. And that is such a gift. And I'm grateful for it every day. But I also don't want to overstate or or mischaracterize the nature of that difference. I mean, I think it is true. My partner is a devout Lutheran. That said, I think there are respects in which she's probably more radical than I am. I mean, she has possibly more radical class politics than I do. And talk about difference, right? I grew up Solidly upper middle class, you know. My my dad, with his quite impoverished childhood, felt very strongly about being able to provide for his family, and went often became a lawyer. I grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, kind of consummately upper middle class suburb. My partner grew up very working class on a farm. Neither of her parents went to college. Frankly, no one in her town basically went to college. So you know, there, there's there's many there's many. Kinds of radicalism, right? And yeah, but that,
0: in some ways, if if you look at America today, people would say that's the core divide that mm -hmm. is getting worse and worse. That the the group of those who did uh, the better, the sort of wealthy elites, and not only that, but primarily the educated elites, have pulled away culturally and psychologically from those without a college education in the country, and that's increasingly the fault line within our politics. And so, I mean, I
1: know a lot of you know extraordinarily educated, multiply-degreed, very wealthy people whose politics I find extraordinarily abhorrent. So I, I don't know that. I know what you mean. Of no, course I, I just know mean what you if you mean, look but... at the
0: data, mm-hmm. that, that education has become an increasing aspect of the polarization. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm really saying. Mm-hmm. And education, of course, in the last 50 to 80 years has become much more critical to earnings mm-hmm. in terms of the rewards that the global economy will give you and so on. And so I'm just saying that... Marriages and friendships, they I'm not saying that anybody from any background will have any particular point of view, but the conjoining of the experience of the middle class with the experience of working class Americans, we need more of that communication.
1: I mean, that I certainly agree with, you know, and it is shocking to me, including t- about my own life and my own past self. It's, It's incredible how proximate you can live to worlds that you know nothing about you know yeah. and, and how the set of what did concerns- you when when what did she
0: what, what what did she reveal to you about that world that she came from that most surprised you
1: I mean where to even begin you know a lot of it is just straightforwardly about money and power you know it's an interesting thing again I wouldn't say this is true of everyone and, and my partner among other things is quite like my father. She's extraordinarily sort of inexplicably brilliant so I, I don't want to suggest that her kind of analytical eye on the world is just you know a product of, of class background It's a product of heaven only knows what but you know I think that said when you're very very smart and you don't have money or power, you become extraordinarily attuned to its operations in the world. And, and and so I learned a lot about how money works and how power works and how occluded they can be when you don't feel the urgent need to pay attention to them because you have them in spades so you don't think much about them. You know, I learned a lot about that from her. But some of it's just so basic. You know, I do think that... I'll, t- I'll give you an example that seems unrelated but is profoundly related. Before I met my partner, I was a miserable writer. I was one of these writers who, you know, would sort of, stay up all night four nights in a row and, you know, cry before, like, 50% of my deadlines because I, or, or, frankly, after my deadlines because I was always missing them. And I I was just, like, a little bit of a drama queen about it. And it felt all very sincere, you know. It felt like... And and some of that, you know, in fairness, was because, you know, by then I was in my 30s. I did not have a partner. I did not have... I was kind of a one-legged stool. I had one thing, which was my work, and that was going well, and I was very passionate about it, but there was nothing to balance me out. So that was some of it. Mm. But also it, it felt... I lived in a world in which it seemed perfectly reasonable to be up at five in the morning fretting because I couldn't figure out like the perfect end- ending to a piece or whatever. And then I met my partner, who's also a writer, who quite annoyingly is like the happiest writer I've ever met in my life. And I was just like, how is this even possible? She's fast, she's productive, and she genuinely enjoys it. And, you know, at a certain point, I, you know, she just kind of looked at me and was like, I, I, you know, I was asking her, what, what, how, do you, how do you derive so much pleasure from this? And. And she was like, my parents worked five jobs. They worked their jobs. They, you know, I went with them in the evenings and cleaned banks with them. I took out the trash. I vacuumed the carpets. I picked cigarette butts out, you know, up from the parking lot outside. Like, you think this is hard work? Like, get a grip, you know? And she was very kind. She didn't actually say get a grip, but I got the message, right? Which is, she's of course right, you know, which isn't to say our work doesn't. Matter. I wouldn't do this work if I didn't believe it mattered. I wouldn't do this work if I didn't think language and stories and ideas weren't, you know, a, a tremendously crucial part of our culture. But obviously, it's also a cushy job. Right? I mean, it's the middle of the day, Andrew, and you and I are sitting here bantering it is so delightful this is hard know. work <laughs> oh gosh i must I'll be a terrible guest in that case
0: <laughs> 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 yeah no i completely agree mm-hmm. uh and i think i was cu- but you you're you're the new yorker writer you're the you're the you're the, you're the so you're more prone mm-hmm. And when I was only writing like three essays a year, yes, I would get more obsessed <laughs> with each particular one. And, and at the same time, I just had this, I remember the, uh, uh, I, I had the experience of British journalism, which is not agonized. <laughs> 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 to be polite about it. I'll tell you this story. I, I once did a, a column for the Daily was it The Telegraph? No, I think it was The Times. It's just a political story about Washington, whatever. I filed it, and... Oh God, this takes me... It was about The Contras. Can you oh, imagine wow. that in the 80s. Jesus, Lord. I am so old. <laughs> anyway, I realized afterwards, I can't remember exactly, that I, I got something wrong in it. I, I realized that there was a sentence in there that contained an error. And so I rushed the phone, and, and this is when you're dictating copy over the phone... And I said I called up. The, none of the editors were there. It was too late. The sub editors were there, who are like, talk about working class people. But that's what the old system used to be. And I said, "There's a thing in the thing. Can you, th- th- there's a sentence at the end of the third paragraph. And if you could just, can you fix this?" He says, oh, I wouldn't worry about that, mate. <laughs> I mean, it's it's this is the the phrase. It's, like, it's fish and chips now, mate. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's already gone. Um, and I was like, well, you know." <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful thing about those days, too, is that it really was fish and chips and it never appeared anywhere else. Now it's eternal. Uh, Your errors are forever. For, they're, they're, everything is is alive and present and you, any mistakes you've ever made can be regurgitated. But I think just the habit of having to hack it out every week. Mm-hmm. Write a col- I wrote a column for, for 17 years and... As Fred Barnes, the great old Fred Barnes used to say, I don't, you ever heard, he was, he was, he's a conservative writer who used to work at the New Republic, and he said he was once asked by a, an ingenuous student, like, what's the, what's the most important quality of a piece? And he said, doneness. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I have I, I was not familiar with Mr. Barnes delivery of that line, but I have heard it from my very own editor, so it has stood the test oh, of time. Really? Yes. Well then maybe he was <laughs> yes, just uh, The inevitable quality it. of doneness, yes. <laughs> well it's it is. It's true, you know, it's true that you're not doing the job if you don't turn it in.
0: Do you I find it absolutely agonizing to read stuff I've written after it's been done. I to I I just put out a collection and I had to go back and reread so much of my stuff. It was probably the most painful thing I'd ever done in my life. <laughs> and I just want to look forward. Is, do you have the same? Do you feel that way?
1: Well, I don't have occasion to do it very often, to tell you the truth. I mean, I certainly haven't read, haven't reread my last book since I finished writing it. It's an interesting question with this book, since it is so personal, whether I'll have occasion to turn back to it. With the magazine writing, you know, occasionally I guess I go, I go back to something because I'm Quite frankly, trying to remember how I did something or like a fact or, you know, poach some kind of turn I made, not not self plagiarize, but figure out how I made something work. Does it torment me? You know, I think there's a kind of there's there's a, a, a chronological angle to it if it's recent enough no i really try to avoid the deeper past and yes to your point thank goodness the very earliest things i wrote do not seem to be readily available on the internet which yeah. is i really feel for this generations of generation of journalists or frankly humans like i'm just so glad that a certain amount of my past has you know mercifully done what the past is supposed to do which is just slide off into the waters of obscurity
0: <laughs> yeah I want to go back to something that I, we didn't quite develop, which is this idea of love at first sight. Ah, yes. How is that possible?
1: I mean, what an excellent question. You know, I grapple with it in the book because it seems, frankly, impossible—at least in my particular cosmology. You know, I think it's—it's it's not hard to—it's not hard to come up with an explanation. You know, if you believe that someone is meant for you, quite literally made for you. But how would you know sense, that when you that, just see them? Well, I mean, then it's just a sort of second order question. If the right person is out, there, if someone can create the right, if some divine power can create the right person for you, then surely that same divine power is capable of making sure you don't get it wrong, right? You know, of feeling, you, you could feel Hold some, me.
0: You don't believe in divine power.
1: <laughs> I do not believe in divine power. So, that's so why this is so mysterious I, to yeah, me, okay. right? But I'll tell you what I do believe in is the kind of endless mysteriousness of the human mind. I mean, the, 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 the mind and the cosmos are two kind of similarly dazzling and largely unfathomed entities, and so I, um, I, I bow quite humbly before them. And so the fact that I can't explain how it would be possible to know very soon after meeting someone that, that they were right for you does not—I mean, why would what I know— be the measure of what is possible, right? I mean I'm, I'm, I, I'm sure I can be arrogant, but I'm not that arrogant
0: <laughs> I just find this, love itself is a very complicated physical, mental sexual, emotional thing, and yet you fall in love at the sight of someone it, 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 it's, <laughs> that should be random, right? Now, of course, it's not random because we are evolutionary programmed to look for except those of us who are not heterosexual. We don't know why we were an evolutionary program for what we. There's no conceivable Darwinian. Well, maybe there is actually, but I just, I just, I'm riveted by this this idea. Sometimes I see gay couples who look identical. It seems as if they just wanted to be in a safe zone, or I don't know. I mean, I, I'm judging. I'm not. I, 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 I. One thing I also know is that everyone else's relationship is a complete mystery. Well, I, one's own relationships are a complete mystery to oneself. So, whatever. I'm just fascinated by seeing someone and somehow knowing mm-hmm. somehow knowing this is it
1: it's truly mysterious i mean i i you know i think we all first of all i don't want to suggest it's the only way people fall in love i certainly know people who are in very happy relationships that did not begin with a kind of instantaneous and mutual recognition and for that matter I, i'm sure there's plenty of cases of, of People who had that moment of instantaneous recognition and it collapsed in, you know, a day, a week, a month, 10 years, who knows. But I think we all know someone who has this story, right? I love these. I kind of idly collect them. You know, the, the firefighter who shows up at the house and, you know, is changing an alarm system for someone and the woman has to write him a check and he takes the check back to the department and says, can you make me a copy of that? I'm gonna marry that woman and then marries that woman. These things happen, you know, my life is full of stories like these. And I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I, I do think that I have a lot of fun in the book kind of talking about the history of the of, of how we make sense of these things. Because everyone's wrestled with this question, right? I mean, Plato wrestled with this question, the ancients wrestled with it, the moderns what was, wrestled with it. Like what it's was all Plato's fair. Well, Plato conveniently had an account of, of all of all things, of course, which is that the soul is eternal and therefore has experienced everything there is. To experience and so from his perspective it's not that we fall in love at first sight because we aren't exactly it's not exactly that we're seeing someone new we're remembering them and that's actually a very um you know, if you, if you can buy the premises, it's a very persuasive argument because we do all know that memory, even a very faint memory, is incredibly evocative, right? This is why Proust is still famous today, right? You know, a, a whiff of something or a, a tiny glimmer of a memory, you can experience an overwhelming upsurge of emotion. So, you know, to Plato's credit, that is a it's an elegant explanation because it accounts for the experience, right? If, if I were Remembering my partner when I met her, some faint, distant, unaccess- inaccessible part of my soul was like, Ah, you! I knew you in a former life. The whole thing would make a lot of sense, and I think a lot of people narrate their relationships that way. It actually feels that way. Oh, we've known each other forever, or we must have met in a past life. That language feels kind of alien to me cosmologically, but I, but it, but it is explanatory. It makes sense of those moments. So you know, people have tried at, at kind of every generation to come up with a good explanation. I, I myself am a little bit content with love being in the category of the unsolvable mystery. Like, what a beautiful thing. It should be a little bit mysterious.
0: Yeah. Do you think, because you and I are the least able to really talk about this, but but the difference between men and women in (laughs) these contexts, Mm. because yours is a very human book. I'm not, the falling in love feels, as a man, very, I could understand it. I, I felt those things. And yet at the same time, it seems to evoke love and friendship those two great things in a very female way. It's it's so it's so precise. It's so carefully observed. It is it's so granular. I don't know. I'm just I'm just thinking out loud here. I'm th- I'm just wondering if a man could have written this book.
1: Well, I'm very grateful for the compliments, but I'm obliged to tell you that so precise and so closely observed. You know, certainly a hundred years ago would not be the the kind of praise afforded a woman, right? Precision, intellectual precision, acuity of vision these were not these were not normally attributed to women. But, now I know what you they mean. They are,
0: but, but in my opinion, <laughs> <laughs> obviously I'm not. I, I love these generalizations because they're interesting, but mm. and untrue, but nonetheless mm. worth. Talking about, but no, that's exactly what I see in the brilliance of mm-hmm. the women writers that were able to write in the circumstances of which Sir Austin, were right? I mean, right. I mean uh, who, who understood things better mm-hmm. and more carefully and more precisely observed? But so I, 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 well, I mean, yes, look, I mean, I'm be, for example. Mm-hmm. I think there'd be more sex in the book in fact, ah. if it were men. If it were a man, I mean, you talk about Philip Roth. <laughs> I mean, it's like Jesus. I am. I'm, I'm. This is a. This is a very random. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, thought. that's fair. I've I've actually been shocked. I haven't been asked that before. That I don't think has to do with gender. That has to do with privacy i suppose uh-huh. and i guess specifically not i mean i didn't actually have any to be clear i i mean i think sex is amazing incredible and a central part of of any committed relationship and i i hope of most you know many people's happy and joyful marriages but look i when my partner and i met i had just started working for the new yorker i was largely a book critic. I did a bunch of reported writing. There was absolutely nothing in my biography to indicate that I would ever go do something as crazy as write a memoir. And it was to her great credit, because she is a more private person than I am, that she never for a moment flinched about it. But I felt that the least I could do, having dragged not only her, but quite frankly, her entire family into my memoir, all of them coming along for the ride with tremendous good grace, I thought, well, I really don't, I do not need, there are things I don't need to divulge in this book. and. And partly because that I can imagine circumstances under which that would have been quite a difficult decision or I would have made a different decision. But the truth of the matter is this book, um, I mean, it is a memoir, obviously, but it's a highly constrained one, right? Like, it's a memoir insofar as the story of my own life is serving these big ideas about loss and discovery and, and this kind of andness of life. And quite frankly, like, I can't really think of a moment in which a sex scene would have
0: yeah, served I'm,
1: any of those terribly well.
0: I agree with you. And it wasn't something I missed in any way. And
1: for the record, I'm a, I'm a real egalitarian on the subject of writing and not just gender, but identity of all kinds. I think that circumstances permitting, meaning access to good reading and, and good teachers and, and the mechanisms that allow one to ever publish such a thing, I've never seen anything done. I don't think that I felt any, anything spectacular enough to make me think like, wow, this is really something. I find I'm in awe of it because anyone could do it, not because... A gay man did it, or a straight woman, or a you know black kid from Haiti. Like mm-hmm. I, I, find that it's a beautiful thing to me about writing. It's it's when it's done well. It's like the the act itself is so remarkable, and of course the, the biographical details or, or or the knowledge of the world that's revealed can be very specific to a background or a life story. But the the kind of acrobatics on the page to me, I'm like it's a it's a wonderful sport. It's open to all.
0: <laughs> it is. At the same time, you're writing about real living people.
1: Mm.
0: You're writing about the person you love the most, maybe the two two people that you've loved more intensely than many others. I I certainly found it difficult to to be both truthful mm. uh, while respecting their dignity and their privacy. So for, I've never written about my childhood. Mm. I will at some point, but I not until both parents are dead. You you we know who your partner is and you but you decide to use have just her first initial c now that is an interesting choice because what it what it tells the reader is this but no further mm. i'm not telling you everything but i'm telling you these things because it's relevant to the themes that i am discussing and no further because this person deserve some kind of, and I, I do find some of these memoirs that really destroy the lives of living people just because they're revealing true things about everyone, but every, no one wants their entire life to be poured over, especially its more difficult moments. So I, I really liked that balance
1: I'm going to start bringing you on book tour with me because that's so perfectly said. This but no further. I mean, as you can imagine, that was... I knew I knew the minute I decided to do it that it was going to annoy some people to, to use the initial instead of the name, especially because, to your point, my partner is an absolutely known quantity. She's a fellow New Yorker staff. She's Casey Sepp. She's a fellow New Yorker staff writer. She had a you know New York Times bestseller. Like People know who she is, and I, I wasn't trying to write a romance clay, and I wasn't trying to keep a secret. I was trying to do exactly what you just said, you know, this but no further, and that's that's so beautiful put, so thank you for being a, an astute and generous reader of why I would make that strange
0: choice. <laughs> I would never make the strange choice of going on a book tour with you.
1: But, <laughs> fair, that's fair. We have a lot tours, of fun, I know. You know but, like but no, well, I guess it's, di- it's south different
0: south. now, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. very different than it used mm-hmm. to be. I mean, book tours used to be baton death marches, when, you, <laughs> when there was no F- internet and you would literally had to go to every single city and go on every single radio show in the morning. <laughs> oh, I I honestly have never experienced anything physically. I mean, maybe Burning Man, but physically more, (laughs) more completely, (laughs) completely exhausting than that. This has been lovely, Catherine. Thank you so much for coming in. It's uh, absolutely my delight (laughs) to the to the actual studio, all the way from the Eastern Shore of Maryland. Are you working on something new?
1: Well, I mean, certainly not at book length. I, I try to put a good, you know, solid decade between my books. <laughs> I'm, I'm it's a very good. I think that's a kind of wise strategy. But I'm back at the at the New Yorker full time, and well, you
0: say New Yorker full time, and I'm just like, that's a good gig. <laughs>
1: I'm not going to lie to you, it's a good gig. I'm, I'm speaking of gratitude. I'm, I really am grateful for my job every day. It's a lot of fun.
0: That is, that is something I take from your book, and it's been kind of a a meditation of my own the last few years, which is you can choose gratitude as your approach to life. It's a choice. Or you can choose resentment if you want, because we all have plenty of material for both. But I think the turn towards gratitude is is the right is the right move eternally. I think it's also right now the right move socially, and more generosity, less—more non-zero-sum, less zero-sum. And, and a sense of our helplessness, mm-hmm. the sense of our brokenness, which again is quite a Christian theme in the book, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to push that any further. I Thank you for coming in. Good luck on the future work. If you enjoyed this conversation listening to it, and appreciate that we don't plague you with ads, or I'm not telling you why— you should get this mortgage this week. <laughs> Please subscribe. We have around, these are ballpark figures, 120,000 people who get the weekly dish every week. Only 20,000 of you, roughly, are paying. Uh, now, you get a truncated version for the, but if only a few of you who are getting this for free and wanted to subscribe would do that, it would make a huge difference. So, anyway, with all that we will we have plenty of interesting characters coming up. We have Farid Zakaria. Soon we have Damon Linker coming up and we will see you all next week. Cheers.